0: 1 Peter chapter 5. Good morning. Good to see you. We have three weeks left in 1 Peter. As he closes chapter 5, he addresses leaders. We dealt with that last week. And he spoke of them in regard to the shepherding aspect of things. The remaining part of the chapter is, what's the response of sheep? Now, these things are not things that don't apply to shepherds but there's a council in regard to the the context of things here um, where this is a word um, first part directed toward the elders and the shepherders of the of the these local bodies of believers uh, that Peter is writing to and now he will get to some practical implications and application in regard to uh, the membership of the church but again these things apply to everyone um, in that so as Peter closes, this, as he begins to really close this letter, next week we will, going to finish it all up next week, and then uh, two weeks from now we're just going to do an overview and reminder of where we've been. We started this on the third week of January, it's been uh, a number of months ago, we started walking through these five chapters. Um. And uh, we just want to remind us there's some great things that we've kind of ventured away from, uh, and it'd be good to be reminded of those. And so so we'll finish it up, the teaching part of things, and then we'll have a good reminder uh, a couple of weeks from now about everything that we have done. So these believers, again to remind us, have walked through deep persecution. They are still dealing with the reality of it. It has come from Nero's hand. We believe this letter was written in AD 62, likely three or four months after Nero had burned Rome. Believers were forced to flee because they were getting the blame for what was taking place um, with it. So, as Peter closes this letter, he's going to give them final counsel, final admonition of how to live your faith in the midst of persecution. And if you think about that, how should he close this letter? What should he remind them of or what should he tell them that they ought to do in their lives? And and if you would think with me just for a moment, um, here are some things he could have said to them. You need to find your inner strength and make it through. He could have written, hey, you are the one who is in control of your destiny. He could have said to them, you are worthy of something so much more. And there's some truth in some of these that I will mention here. He could have said something like this, you and only you. Are ultimately responsible for who you, co- who you become and, and how happy you're going to be and the things in the midst of all the stuff that you're dealing with. Or he could have said, don't let your persecutors define your life. All those things would be okay to say in a sense. But what he's going to do is he's going to deal with an attitude that's really important. And it's an attitude that's clothing that we are to wear. And we're going to see it today. The theme in verse 5 through 7 that we will deal with today is this word humility. And it is a beautiful word, and we're going to um, um, kind of walk through it in deep detail today because it just permeates um, 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 5. So of all the things that he, conclude, he could conclude to these persecuted believers, he concludes with them, you are to walk humbly before the Lord and walk in a place of humility. So let's look at the text this morning, and then we'll start to walk through it. 5, 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or cares on him, Because he cares for you. So today he's going to conclude, he's going to give this idea in 5 through 7. There's an attitude that these persecuted believers must have, and it's the attitude of humility. And then he's going to tell them there's an action. That they are to do as well in the midst of this. And they are to cast, the action is to cast all their cares, all their anxiety, all their worry. They are to cast it on the Lord. So there's an attitude that he calls them to, humility. There's an action that he calls them to, to cast their cares upon the Lord. So let's walk through this. And the first point this morning is humility and respect. And so let's deal with this of what he teaches here in the first part of verse 5. So he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All through this letter, let me remind us, he has called different groups of believers to be submissive, to deal with the reality of what they are dealing with. Let me just remind us. He has given instruction to husbands and wives how they are to submit to one another and how they are to deal with one another in a relationship. He has talked to <clears throat> permeated uh, the Roman kingdom, household slaves as Rome went through places They would capture lands. They would make the people who are the inhabitants of that land become household slaves for the Roman citizens who would be living in that. And so all through the kingdom, there were these household slaves. And so he gave them some instruction how they were to be subject uh, to their masters. Um, He gave everyone instruction of how to submit to government. So he said to them, (coughs) be subject to... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution. In chapter 2, he speaks about that. Whether it's to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil or to praise those who do good. So there was a call to submission for everyone who was a believer to government. And then he had instruction last week we looked at to the elders about how the elders were to live their lives. And now, in the first part of verse 5, he gives some instruction to the younger generation who were connected to the church and how they were to see those that were older than them and particularly in the ones in the leadership role who were called elders. So let's ask this question and let's answer it. So when he says, you who are younger, who is he referring to? Two options here. One is he is referring to those that maybe are new in the faith. They are young in the faith. They are new believers. So possibly he is calling them, to because of where they are in life, to be subject to the elders for the instruction and the admonition that comes from them. And I think there's application that we could say, sure, that is true for them. But I think what he really means is this, is he is calling because he's addressed everybody in, this, in these churches, except for one group, and that's the younger generation. So I think he is addressing the younger generation. And he's calling them in the midst of their youth, in the midst of their zeal, in the midst of their passion, in the midst of their, I want to be in control, that there's a call upon their life in the midst of a church. that They are submit to the leadership of the church, the adults that are over them. And there's a unique relationship that is there. So I think the application is for both. I think it is for new believers. But I think the specific calling that he's writing here is he's speaking to the younger generation Within the church. We all know this. We were there at one time, right? Some of us, it was a lot longer ago, but if you remember when you were younger, youth is very idealistic about things. Sometimes youth is impatient with leadership and can easily or sometimes slowly get there, but they can get to a place where they rebel against authority. Sometimes they look at the church and say, The church isn't moving fast enough. The church needs to do more. And there's a tension that exists between the younger generation and an older generation. Um, where there's some tension there and a longing for um, some more things to happen sometimes a younger generation wants to assert themselves to have their own way and to get um, what they want and sometimes the way that they do that is to tear down those who are in leadership of them I I've been doing this for a long time and there is nothing that can tear a church apart quicker, and then this tension that is there. I'm very thankful for the student generation uh, that's a part of LifePoint here. Um, uh, they just have been ones that do a really good job of listening and 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 guiding along, and yet also at the same time being very passionate in their zeal and youth. Um, we know this, particularly those of us who have uh, youth kids or you've, they've come through your house. One of the beauties of youth is this. Energy yesterday out here, you know, we we these guys over here, Cody and Javon, younger Carter, they were here working yesterday. We put them on some good tasks, and they worked really hard all day long. And we talked about at the end, boy, um, I would not want to be 13 again, but I wish I could have some of the energy and the zeal and the things that that seems to have left my life at this point in time. And so that's part of the beauty of it. But then there's also a maturity aspect to where they've not lived long enough and there's counsel that needs to be spoken into their life and guidance that needs to be there. So Peter, dealing with these persecuted believers... Part of these churches of persecuted believers are kids connected to this family who were also experiencing the reality of persecution. So he's calling them as they've resettled in, in Asia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia and, and these places. Listen, I'm calling you youth who are part of the church to have a perspective that there is to be a respect to those that are older than you and to trust their leadership um, as a part of their life. One of the roles we have is to invest in our students. And tonight in this room, these front chairs are going to be cleared out. The elementary age kids will be here, our student generation. They will be leading the worship, they will be leading the teaching, they will be leading the recreation, because our job is to invest in them for them to now learn how to do this, not just to wait until they graduate from college, but now is the time to begin to do this. And so he calls them, Peter does, to say, listen, you who are younger, you need to have respect for your elders. So this word, Submissive or be subject to is a Greek word called hupatasso, and it means this it's a military word, and it means to arrange in a certain order or to line up in a certain order as in the military in regard to the officers and and the people that are below them. It's the same idea. It is a willing submissiveness to say, I'm going to place myself under the authority of those who are over me, and I'm going to line up in accordance with this. The verb tense here is in the aorist in the Greek, and it literally means this, do this now and continue to do this. So that's the call, he says do this now, don't wait for it, and and continue to do this. Now let me say this about submission and humility as we talk about this today. The call of God in every area of our life, and even in regard to this one, is never to be seen negatively. We're to see the call of God in regard to humility and submissiveness as an instrument in the hand of God to shape our lives. Now there's a tension, as I said a while ago. Um, with parents and their kids. Kid wants more freedom parent doesn't think they're really ready for it yet knows that they're not fully ready for it and the tension of how much do I let go how much freedom do I continue to give and all of those things that are connected with it even in the midst of that where a youth wants I want my freedom the youth is even in the midst of the desire of that is to fall in line and be submissive because as they do God honors that attitude of respect and submissiveness to the authorities that are over them and that becomes this call and the way God has set this up becomes an instrument of God that shapes them because as we all know that are adults now you're going to have authority in your life for the rest of your life are you not we all are we're going to have that and so there's a there's a learning that comes in the midst of that um, right now do you remember early on in Joseph's life back in Genesis his brothers did not treat him well (coughs) And it led to a number of different difficulties with him. He was put into a pit. He was sold as a slave. He was falsely accused. He was put in jail. He was forgotten in jail. And eventually all of that led Joseph to a place that God wanted Joseph to be. And all of that being submissive to Potiphar. Being submissive at home, even though it didn't go well. um, Being submissive to eventually Pharaoh and even the innkeeper, uh, not the innkeeper, uh, the jailer. All through that, Joseph, younger, submitted to those over him. And as he submitted, what did God do everywhere? He thrived. God exalted him. And eventually, as he did that, there was such an attitude that Joseph embraced that he became the key leader under Pharaoh in Egypt. And God got him to that place All of that was an instrument of the hand of God to get Joseph where God wanted him to be. Now, this is never an easy road, is it, to get there? It's not an easy road. Sometimes it's very difficult to to kind of walk through all those things. But I think sometimes we forget, no, God, I I want you to fix it all right now. And God sometimes says, no, I'm gonna take about 15 years to get you to the place where I wanna shape you and mold you and get you to that place because when I get you there, then you're going to be ready to do something that I have designed and purposed for you that is really important. So I remember <clears throat> uh, in my youth minister days early on, I started a um, youth minister at age 20 and got to got to know other youth ministers my age and maybe a little bit older than me. And I met some guys along the way who were so incredibly gifted, way more gifted than I was, um, had had that charisma, had that... Uh, speaking ability had that leadership ability and I and we used to say about some of them we used to say man God's just gonna God's gonna elevate them and bring them to a place where they're gonna do great things and many of those people that we talked about are no longer in the ministry now not because of a moral failure because through the years they could never keep a job in a church because they never learned how to be submissive to the leaders the pastor or elders or other people And eventually God just says, if you're not going to be submissive, I'm not going to place you in a leadership position. Because true biblical leaders have learned how to be submissive to authority, and it's really important. So this call, if you're the younger generation in this room this morning, this call to be a part of a local church is one where you listen to those who've lived longer. They've gone through teenage years. They've gone through 20-something years, tw- the 20-something years, and they have learned things about life that's important. And when they speak into you, I would encourage you to really listen. Here's an inherent danger with being young. You look at old people and go, "Uh, oh, their time has passed. They have nothing to say anymore. Another inherent danger is the younger generation thinks because I'm younger, I'm more right or I have more insight. <laughs> Parents, have you dealt with that? You've got kids who are like, oh. Yeah, you're, you, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, I was never a teenager. I was never this. I've never had to get a job. I never, had to do, I never had to deal with a difficult boss. And sometimes youth just think, oh, the older generation, they don't know anything. And one of the sad things about America is that we do not have respect for the older generation. It's not there. It's, it's beautiful when we go to Nepal. Um, a guy like Mike Sisko speaks, who's older. And they have tremendous respect for older people. So when Mike speaks, man, they listen and they hang on every word because there's a respect for those who have lived a long time and and they know that there's, there's wisdom that is connected with it. We are so individualistic here in America that we don't respect those who have walked many years. I love talking to the older generation here in our church. There's tremendous wisdom and we should... Count on that sometimes in our lives to call some of these people and say, "Hey, can we have coffee? Can we have talk? Can we look? Can we talk about some things? And can you give me some perspective?" So here's what Peter says to these first call. He says, "Listen, I've not addressed this, so I'm going to address it. You who are young, you have respect for those who are older than you, and you have respect for your elders." Secondly, next part, and then he he ad- so he addresses a young generation. Now he's going to say, "Hey, everybody in the church, elders." Every other member in the church, I want to I remind you that there is, there is something that's required of you. And so he says in the second part of verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So we see that submission is not just a younger generation to elders, not just a wife to a husband and a husband to a wife and a slave to to, um, a master. But he's saying this, listen, all of you, you submit to one another. You have humility toward one another. So this is for everyone. And this me generation mindset says things like this. I insist that others minister to me. I insist that you teach me, care for me, you provide for me, you speak with me, you counsel me with no desire of investing back in others, but wanting everybody to do something for us. And that's this me generation mindset, and it is anti-biblical, it is not what believers are to do. Believers think in humility, and humility is this, it is thinking of others as more important than ourselves. And we'll see that here in the text here for a moment. So, Peter writes here, humility, clothe yourself. He says, all of you do this with humility, one another. So this phrase here, clothe yourself, carries the idea of two words in the Greek. One was, um, <clears throat> I've never worn one before, but I've seen one. Christmas time coming up. Y'all, y'all realize Christmas is like almost here. It is almost here. My wife bakes a lot. Puts an apron on, ties it, so you won't get things on your clothes. In the ancient days, uh, this word here, clothe yourself, was a, the word that described clothing, any type of clothing that you tied to your body over you and over your clothing to keep it clean. It, it was, it, And it, it became an identifying mark of the only people who wore that were the household slaves. So the only ones who wore this were the household slaves or maybe someone who was a blacksmith or something of that nature who did something like that. But it identified not the nobility, it identified those who were servants. And so Peter here is saying this. As a believer in the church, you tie on the apron of servanthood. So that was one meaning. A second meaning was there was another, this Greek word occasionally was used to describe the nobility in, in this long- flowing clothing that they wore. And so I think possibly Peter has in mind both these ideas. Tie on to you as clothing, as a believer within the church, humility. Tie it on. It's the clothing you wear. And it's the clothing that Jesus wore because he came as a servant. He became called the suffering servant. So he became a servant. But here's what happens. When you become a servant, we'll see here in a moment, in time, God exalts those who make themselves low. But those who want to make themselves high and say, I'm better than everybody, God humbles those. He opposes the proud. But those who are humble and they make themselves low in time, God exalts those people, and so that's the call here. Now, I want you to look with me, with me at this text because it's important. Go to your left and turn to Philippians chapter 2 just for a moment. This is the great text in the book of Philippians about what humility looks like. Jesus, before the world was made and was spoken into being, before man was made, was the eternal God worshiped Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's how you do that. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's ours in Christ Jesus because it was His mindset, and we are in Him. So what was this mindset? Verse 6. Who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do? He emptied himself. He made himself less than. Not in nature, but in action. He didn't go around saying, hey, me, 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 me. He could have. He didn't. He emptied himself. And what did he do? 7 says, he took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And watch this. So he made himself low. Verse 9. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him. We'll see this word bestowed in a moment. It means to grant. It means to give. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus, watch this, Jesus came. Preexistent God, never had a beginning. Jesus will never have an end. He came here, instead of just walking around going, hey, I'm God, bow. He sh- tied on to his life, servanthood, and he bowed down and he served people like you and I. So we, we are to tie this clothing upon ourselves it's called the apron of humility it's a good picture of it the apron of humility and when we do that we will see ourselves like Christ does saw himself and we will be more like him a servant and again he says here all of you do this that means I do it, it means Rocky does it David Freeze does it Andrea does it Randy does it every one of us Ties this on, this heart of, I've come today to church, not for everybody to, to make a big deal about me, but I've come today to, to invest myself in other people and to see how they're doing and to look to their needs And if they're, watch this, if we all do that, looking at the needs of everybody else, guess who gets included in that eventually? Somebody will look after our needs and ask, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I invest in you? And so the calling that Peter's giving to these persecuted believers is the heart of humility and saying, don't make a big deal about yourself. You make yourself less than. And it's possible that Peter echoed back to John chapter 13. They're in the upper room. Jesus takes off his outer clothing and it says he tied a towel. He tied it. He aproned something to himself and he got down and he washed their feet. And when he was done in John 13, 12, he said this, when he had washed their feet and he had put back on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right For so I am that. I I am that. And then he said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, the one who is above you, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is never greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him." And watch what he said. Jesus says here, And if you know these things, you will be blessed by them if you do them. What a great call. So this command and this call to clothe ourselves with humility goes all the way back in this picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So one, he calls the youth to respect. And you do that by humility. Secondly, he says, Hey, everybody in the church, You tie on a heart of humility and you become a servant where you're thinking of other people as more important than yourselves. George Matheson lived in the 1800s. He was an Irish theologian. And this week I read something about him. And so um, forgive some of the uh, old English here. My soul, reject not the place of thy prostration. It has ever been the robing room for royalty. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their eventual prosperity, and they will say, It was the cold ground on which I was once laying. Ask Abraham, and he will point to the sacrifice of Moriah. Ask Joseph, and he will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, and he will date his fortune to the danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, and she will bid you build her monument on the field of her toil. Ask David, and he will tell you that his songs came in the darkness of the night. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him and spoke to him out of the whirlwind. And ask Peter, and he will extol his submission in the sea. Ask John, and he will point to the island of Patmos. And ask Paul, and he will attribute his inspiration to the light that struck him blind on the road to Damascus. And then ask one more, the Son of Man. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world, and he will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground, for there I received my scepter. Thou too, my soul, shalt be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup thou fain wouldst pass from thee would be thy coronet or thy crown in the sweet by and by. The hour of thy loneliness will crown thee, the day of thy depression will regale thee. It is in the desert that will break forth into singing it is the trees of thy silent forest that will clap their hands at the glory of god great description in the 1800s about humility about it's it's the garb of the holy soul and it's where we make ourselves low thirdly humility and god's resistance to pride look at the th- third part of verse 5 So he says, hey, younger generation, you respect your elders. And then he says, listen, I'm telling you, it's so critically important. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because here's why God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Thirdly, let me just briefly talk about humility and God's resistance to pride. So until you and I learn submission in the church and with God, we will never be the effective Christian that God wants and desires for us because pride always gets in the way. What does God think about pride? God hates pride. Do you remember Satan? Satan, Isaiah writes about this time when, when before sin entered the world and Satan's in heaven and he decides, I don't like this reality of things. I don't, and so Satan said this. Listen to what Satan said. This is Isaiah fourteen thirteen and 14. I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne there. I will set on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. Do you notice the common thing there? I, I. Pride was the downfall. And pride was brought with Satan. And pride becomes the very thing that is our problem. And I just tell you this and this is this is a hard one for us to swallow sometimes because i think some of the the reason god isn't working in our lives a lot of times is because pride dominates our lives and god opposes pride this word opposes here in the greek means this it describes an army that has set itself up to fight against another army and they've come to stand against and fight against the army watch this When pride is the dominant thing in our life, God stands opposed to us. Doesn't mean that he doesn't love us, but God stands against us as an army saying, you will, and by the way, we will never win standing before him going, oh yeah, God, I got something to say to you and our pride wells up and God God is not intimidated in that moment. Ever is he intimidated and he will win that battle every time. And He will crush the pride in us. We've all been there before when pride gets crushed in us. And it's a bruising, bruising moment when that happens. And sometimes it's really deeply good for us. So this word in the Greek is antitasso, And it literally means God opposes, God fights against those. The verb tense here as well in this text indicates that God will always be opposed to pride. There's not going to be a moment. There's not going to be a time where He's going to go, okay. I'm not opposed to it. He will always be opposed to pride. Pride becomes a resisting of God's work and movement in our lives. So God resists the proud. Remember the Tower of Babel? They were building a tower to go where? Up in the heavens to reach God. God came down and took a look at that, it says, and what did He do? He confused their language. So, Because he just recognized it in their hearts. They just thought, no, we're going to be greater. We're going to be greater. And God opposes that. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4? He's become the powerful man on planet earth. One night he's walking in his palace at night. Dark is there and he looks out and he sees lights all over the city of Babylon, all over his kingdom. And in Daniel 4, this is what he says. He says, at the end of the 12 months... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a residence and for the glory of my majesty? And as soon as he said that, God spoke and said, "Mm -mm." and he was forced to live like a wild animal and eat grass out in the field. See, God stands opposed to pride. And here's, one of the, here's, here's why pride is such an issue. Is it keeps us, when well, pride is there, it keeps us from seeing our need for Jesus, doesn't it? Because we think, no, I can handle all this. I don't need him. I can handle it. So it keeps us from seeing our need for him. Secondly, pride um, craves independence. Never community. And so pride just just makes itself stand out alone. And thirdly, pli- pride blinds us from personal sin and I would just close with this and this point here, is pride never accomplishes anything eternal, ever. It is never gonna accomplish anything eternal. It is always gonna be about short-term aspects of things. Fourthly, let's look at the posture. Look at the next part of verse five. There's so much in verse five, all right? Here's the right posture. So he says, but God gives grace to the humble. This word humble here, you gotta go all all the way back to Egypt. <clears throat> There's a word that that was used there and eventually the Greeks when they were conquering the world they um they used this word Um, this greek word called tepanos and it meant this it described the nile when the nile was at its lowest and it was really really low and it wasn't flowing fast it was very something that was very low to the ground and the nile instead of being up over the banks it was something that was very low and they so they described it as something that was not rising far from the ground and so here's what peter says god gives grace to those who make themselves low like the nile And its lowest stage, is low to the ground, it's not high, it's low, that is who God honors and that's who God gives more grace to. Now we're talking about this word grace here. We always talk about grace a lot of times connected to the cross and salvation. This is an aspect of grace that's not connected to, to the saving salvation moment, it's connected to the sanctification moment. That as we walk with God and we walk in humility, he gives grace to those who aren't proud. He gives grace to to those who make themselves low. And he gives it more and more and more and more in our lives. And can you think of anything greater that we could get on a consistent basis from the hand of God than more grace? And so Peter says, listen, God opposes this exalting your head above other people in pride but when you make yourself low, and we'll see here in a moment that he will eventually exalt, and his call here is make yourself low, and when you do so, he gives grace to those who are humble. The word gives here is a word called bestow. It's the same word that, that we saw back in Philippians chapter 2. It's the word bestow, uh, to confer or to put something into someone's Possession, he gives more and more of this. The word grace here is the word Greek word charis, and it's a beautiful word. weist in his um, commentary on this text says this: that the Greeks used to use the word charis in, in the past um, to speak of someone out of the pure generosity of their heart, they just freely gave something to someone else. But it was always done in a way to a friend. It was never done to an enemy. But the but the New Testament writers took the word charis and they used it differently because with God, what did God give grace to? He gave it to his enemies. The world just says, okay, you're good to me. I'm going to be good to you. But, and so the Greeks just used this word charis as grace of you gave something freely out of your heart to a friend, but God gave everything to those who were his enemies, and that's why when we speak about grace, there's such a beauty to it connected to Christianity. Humility is the characteristic that keeps peace alive in a church and strong in relationships, that the relationships stay strong together. And pride is always the great disturber and destroyer of churches. And almost always, always, any dissension in a church, you can trace it back to pride. And a humble person is one who knows their place within God's plan that I am to align myself in humility with others, and to walk in God's purpose in His Word. Let me give you a few other verses: James four six, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. James four ten, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Proverbs three thirty four, toward the scorners. He is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. All right, let's look at verse 6 now. And we won't have four points under verse 6. So he says, Therefore humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humility has a recognition, recognizing who we ultimately are humbling ourselves under. So for these believers... God was using persecution in their life to bring them low, to bring them to the place of trusting Him. So He was using that in their lives to force them to their knees to seek Him and and to deal with their suffering. And when we humble ourselves, we are affirming this. Watch this. I'm not trusting in my own abilities, but God, I'm trusting in Your mighty hand that Your mighty hand can do something To exalt and do something significant. So this phrase here in verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, means this, strength manifested. If we will humble ourselves, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And as we make ourselves low, and we consider other people more important than ourselves, when we do that... God gives more grace, and as we do that, we are recognizing that we are doing this under the mighty hand of God, that though somebody may do something, though there may be persecution, whatever, whatever the case may be, like these believers we're dealing with, and they've been made to go low and, 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 and forced to a place of humility, as we do that, we are saying, God, I'm not trusting in my abilities for you to do, so I'm relying on your hand. Your hand has to do something. Have you ever been there before? Where you're like, God, I'm, I, I can't fix this. I don't have enough money. My resume is not good enough. God, you're going to have to do something here. And so your mighty hand has got to come through. This phrase, mighty hand, takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, listen, this is holy ground. Take your shoes off. And then He says, listen, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of that. And 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 Moses says, well, what if Pharaoh doesn't want to listen to me? I, I'm not, so you want me to just walk into Egypt and say, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And God says, no, listen, that's not what he's going to do. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my hand and I'm going to outstretch it. It's in Exodus 3. I'm going to stretch out my hand. And I'm going to bring such a crushing blow upon Egypt and Pharaoh that he's eventually going to relent and he's going to let the people go and so God was telling Moses you just trust on me you tell Pharaoh to let my people go but as you tell him to let the people go he's not going to do it but you just place yourself under my mighty hand because I'm going to accomplish it because I'm sovereign God and I will accomplish it and I'll rescue my people but you be my mouthpiece you follow me in obedience And you go and you do this. You know, Jesus had to learn this himself. Luke 2, there's a story in Luke 2 that is so, I love this story. Every year, Joseph and Mary and Jesus and possibly his half-brothers go to Jerusalem for the Passover. One, when he's 12, they're going back and what happens? They look around the road and they're about all, they're way, several days away and Jesus is not with them. That's a panic moment if an angel has appeared to you and said you're going to give birth to the son of God and all this and and you've left him in Jerusalem okay you've left him somewhere and so they go back and they find him in the temple we know the story they find him in the temple and Mary comes in and she observes from a distance let me just read it and when his parents saw him they were astonished. And so his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I, we've been searching for you, and we've been in great distress, Mary says. And I think there's probably not a word that could could adequately fit what they were feeling. And he said to them, well, why were you looking for me? I don't think he was being a smart aleck. He's the eternal God. He's just in a 12-year-old body. He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And listen to his words. This is the eternal, preexistent, glorious God who the angels can't stop saying, holy, holy are you. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So here's the eternal God who said, the father's role for me is to place myself under the leadership of Mary and Joseph, and so I'm going to do it. Because I know in time he will lift me up and he will exalt me. So there's a recognition this with humility that God's mighty hand is over us. So don't let pride well up. Sixthly Humility's reward. Look at the next part of verse six. So that at the proper time he may exalt you this word in the greek time here is keros and it means to reserve it it speaks of a specific point in time in god's time he will lift us up in our humility galatians 4 4 but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman first first timothy 2 5 jesus died at the proper time to the design of the father it says this which is the testimony given at the proper time and we just read a while ago in Philippians chapter 2 therefore God has highly exalted him because of his embracing of humility and he gave him the name that is above every name that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth the reward of humility is that in God's time God will lift us up our problem is we just want it to be like this afternoon God (laughs) will you do it this afternoon God will you do it Three minutes from now, God, will you will you get me out of this God? I'm tired of, of walking low. God, when's this going to come? Well, this is the thing about God. sometimes it takes some time, doesn't it? It just takes some time with him. Spurgeon, writing on this text, writes these words. He says, This is tantamount to the promise. If we will bow down, the Lord will lift us up. Humility leads to honor. Submission is the way to exaltation. The same hand of God which presses us down is waiting to raise us up when we are prepared to bear the blessing. We stoop, Spurgeon says, to conquer. Many cringe before men and yet miss the patronage they crave. But he that humbles himself under the hand of God shall not fail to be enriched, uplifted, sustained, and comforted by the ever-gracious one. It is the habit of Jehovah to cast down the proud and to lift up the lowly. And then he went on to say this, Yet there is a time for the Lord's working. We ought to humble ourselves even at the present moment, and and we are bound to keep on doing so whether the Lord lays his afflicting hand upon us or not. When the Lord smites, it is our special duty to accept the chastisement with profound submission. But as for the Lord's exaltation of us, that can only come in due time. And God is the best judge of that day and hour. So do we cry out impatiently for the blessing? Would we wish for untimely honor? Where are we at? Surely when we are not truly humbled or we should wait with quiet submission. And he says, let us do so joseph said it like this genesis fifteen nineteen. his brothers think oh gosh dad's died now he's going to do a sin and joseph said to his brothers don't fear for am i in the place of god as for you you meant evil against me but god meant what you did for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today we are never to fight against the things that come, for in them we begin to know that God is sovereign and that He's good and that His mighty hand is at work and He is in control. He's behind it all. And so therefore God, we've got to remember, God allows the things in this life to come, not to destroy us, but to mold us and shape us and in His due time to lift us up to where we need to be. Lastly, humility's resolve. So here's the action. Attitude. Lots of time spent on the, atti- the attitude. Lots of time by Peter on the attitude. Now he says there's another thing. He says here's the action. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Those of you who grew up in the church, y'all remember that song? I cast all my cares upon you. We used to sing that in youth group all the time. I lay all my burdens at your feet. And anytime time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares Upon you. So Peter says, Listen, as you are under the hand of Almighty Nero and you don't know what's going to come, I want to tell you this. You cast your cares, the word cares here in the Greek is anxieties. Cast your anxieties, your frets, your fears, cast all of them on him. In the Greek, it means this it means. That these, this word anxieties means something that divides us, something that draws us away, or something that pulls us in another direction. Is that not a descriptive thing of our worry? Does doesn't, does worry always do that? We're worried, oh God, God, you don't have the power to come through this. I've got to take I've got to keep control of this, God, and I've got to try and fix this myself. And it just divides us away, and God gets lost in the midst of that. That's what anxiety does. But Peter says, you cast. This word cast means throw your hope weight of everything that's burdening you throw it all on him you know why because he bore it already on the cross sometimes we look at this and we think well that's back then he bore our sin back then no he bore the sin of the world for all time he bore it and sometimes we're holding on to things that Jesus has already died for he's already borne it he's already provided away way by our trust in what He has done. And so we need to humble ourselves and not worry. And when we worry, we are the ones who become the managers of the situation. And we keep control of our lives. And when we worry, we are the ones who tempt to carry the burdens that Jesus says, throw them on me, I got some big shoulders. I can handle it. I can take care of it. Sometimes we're so worried about the future that we don't live in the present. Sometimes we are so worried in the present that we can't see that there's a hope in the future. And so Peter says, you just throw it all on Jesus, even though you don't know what's going to come. Just throw it all on him. This word casting is beautiful. And it just reminds us that we do not have the capacity to handle things. But he does. And I don't know about you, but it just, isn't it so much easier when somebody else carries it? You ever had to carry your kids at Six Flags or Disney World or someplace that? And you're like, oh my gosh, this kid. And maybe the other spouse carries them for a bit. Or maybe finally submit and rent one of those $25 push wells or something. and put them in and you're like, okay, this is much, much better. And that's the idea. We, Our pride just says... Oh, man, if other people know that I've had to, that I've had to ask for help, what are they going to think of me? You know what? We worry so much about what others think about us so much, uh, so often that they're really not even thinking about us, and we're worried, and we think that they're thinking stuff about us that, that people aren't really thinking that much about us. We are not that important. Did you know that you're not that important? I'm not that important. We are not that important. So just let it go, just cast it on him because he cares for you. Is that not beautiful? Cast all the things that divide you away from God on God and as you do that, he takes them and you see that he cares for you and that he's there for you. So that's his closing counsel in a sense to these believers about, about the attitude and the next week he's gonna give some practical steps of some things in verse 8 all right let's pray